the cosmic void. Onward it stretches into infinity, matched in depth and vastness by but one thing, the human imagination. We present now a story from this, the greater of two endless realms. Join us as we enter a gate beyond. In December of 1476, Vlad III, Prince of Wallachia, and the historical inspiration for Count Dracula, was assassinated. Despite a life marked by acts of extreme violence and brutal bloodshed, Vlad is heralded by many in his homeland as a national hero for his deeds in turning back the tide of Turkish invasion. Our story examines what might happen if Vlad found his way through the centuries from his native Romania to modern-day Hollywood and took great umbrage to his depiction in a feature film. Taken from the collection A Coven of Vampires, copyright 1998, this is entitled Zach Phalanx is Vlad the Impaler by Brian Lumley. Harry S. Scatsman Jr. was livid. He was a tiny, fat, cigar-chewing, fire-eating, prima-donna-taming, scene-shooting ball of absolutely livid livid. Of all things, an accident. And on his birthday, too. Zach Flanks, superstar, king of the bad guys, had been involved in some minor accident back in Beverly Hills, an accident which, however temporarily, had curtailed his appearance on location. Scatsman groaned, his scarlet jowls drooping and much of the anger rushing out of him in one vast sigh. What if the accident was worse than he'd been told? What if Zack was out of the film, horrible thought, permanently? All that so expensive advanced publicity, all the bother over visas and work permits and the trouble with the local villagers, all for nothing. Of course, they could always get someone to fill Zack's place. Kurt Douglash, perhaps, but it wouldn't be the same. In his mind's eye, Scatsman could see the headlines in the film rags already. Zach Phalanx was Vlad the Impaler. The little fat man groaned again at this mental picture, then leaned forward in his plush leather seat and snarled, he never spoke to anyone, always snarled, at his driver, Joe, you sure the message said Zach was only slightly hurt? He didn't stick himself on his steering wheel or something? Yeah, slightly hurt, Joe grunted. Minor accident. Joe had been driving his boss now for so many years, on location in so many parts of the world, that Scatsman's snarls no longer phased him. But they phased most everyone else. Even as the big car plowed steadily through rain afternoon mist, as it rose up out of the valleys on old winding roads that were often only just third class, high above in the village-sized huddle of caravans, huts, and shacks, up in the glowering Carpathian Mountains, Harry S. Scatsman's colleagues prepared themselves for all hell let loose when the florid, fiery little director returned. They all knew now that Zach Phalanx had been injured, that his arrival at Disclarvia Airport had been unavoidably delayed. And they knew, moreover, just exactly what that meant where Scatsman was concerned. 
the little fat man would be utterly unapproachable, poisonous, raging one minute and sobbing the next in unashamed frustration until old Grimgrin, as Phalanx was fondly known in movie circles, showed up. Then they could shoot his all-important scenes. This dread of the director in dire mood was shared by all and sundry, from the producer, Jerry Solinger, a man of no mean status himself, right down to Sam Sugar Sweeney, the coffee boy, who was in fact a man of 63, and including slow-eyed Shani Salarno, the heroine of this, Scatsman's 14th epic. Oh, there was going to be a fuss all right, but what, they all asked themselves, would the fuss really be all about? For in all truth, Zach Phalanx's scenes were not to be many. His magic box office name on the billboards, starred as Vlad the Impaler himself, was simply to be a draw, a name to pull the crowds. For the same reason, Shani Salarno was cheesecake, though certainly she had far more footage than the grim, scar-faced, sardonic, ugly, friendly star of the picture. And most of that picture, filmed already, had been dashed off to Hollywood for the usual pre-release publicity screenings, except for the flank scenes, which, now that the star was known to be out of it, however temporarily, Jerry Solinger had explained away in a hastily drummed up, fabulously expensive telephone call as being simply too terrific, too fantastically good to be shown in any detail before the actual premiere. Of course, the gossip columnists would know better, but hopefully before they got their wicked little claws into the story, Phalanx would be out here in Romania, and all would be well. But meanwhile, the important battle scenes, all ketchup and zenth though they were, would have to wait on the arrival of old Grimgrin, injured in some minor traffic accident. Producer Jerry Solinger was beginning to wish that he'd never heard of Vlad the Impaler, or rather that Harry S. Scatsman had never heard of him. Solinger could still remember when first the fat little director had snarled into his office to slam down upon his desk a file composed of bits and pieces of collected facts and lore concerning one Vlad Dracula. This Vlad, a Vlad being a title of some sort, possibly Prince, had been a 15th century warlord, a wallach of incredible cruelty. Like his ancestors before him, he had led his people against wave after wave of invading Turks, Magyars, Bulgars, Lombards, and other equally barbaric to beat them back from his princedom airy in the foreboding mountains of Carpathia. He was, in short, the original Dracula, but whichever historian appended the words the Impaler to his name had in mind a different sort of impaling than did Bram Stoker when he wrote his popular novel. Vlad V. Tepesh Dracula of Wallachia had earned his name by sticking the captured hundreds of his enemies vertically on rank after rank of upright stakes, where they might sit and scream out the mercifully short remainder of their lives in hideous agony while he and other nobles laughed and cantered their war horses up and down amidst the blood and gore. The vampire legend in connection with Vlad V probably sprang up not only from this monstrous method of execution, but also from the fact that a Wallachian curse has it, despite his laying dead for over 500 years, that Vlad the Impaler will return from the grave with his warriors of old to protect his lands if ever again invaders penetrate his boundaries. 
This roughly was the information that Scatsman's file contained, and to cover it, he had stapled a single sheet of paper bearing the following storyline, his synoptic plan of the epic to be. Quote, Vlad Drac, Zach Phalanx, scorned by his subjects and the sovereigns of neighboring kingdoms and princedoms alike for his chicken pacifist ways, finally loses his coal and takes up the sword against the invader, as something like friendly persuasion but with mountains and battle axes. This only after his castle has been burned right off the edge of its precipice by the advancing Turks, and after his niece, the young Princess Minera, Shani Salarno, has been raped by the Turk barbarian boss, Tony Quinn. To conclude, we'll have Vlad's suicide after his boys mistakenly stick his mistress, Glory Graham, who was dressed like a Turk camp follower to escape the invaders, not realizing that Vlad has already whooped them. Robert Black can whip this up into something good." Unquote. To this brief, almost cryptic outline, Scatsman had appended his signature. And from that simple seed, the idea had blossomed, mushrooming into a giant project, an epic, by which time it had been too late for Solinger to back out. Truth of the matter was that the producer was a little fearful of these so-called epic productions. Just such a project had almost ruined him many years ago. But with such a story, with the awesome, disquieting grandeur of the Carpathian Mountains as background, with a list of stars literally typecast into the very parts for which they were acclaimed and which they played best, with Scatsman as director, and he was a very good director despite his tantrums, well, what could go wrong? Much could go wrong. And yet at first it had seemed like plain sailing. The new peace pact with the Eastern Bloc countries had helped them in the end to get the necessary visas. That and the promise of recruitment as extras of hundreds of the poor local villagers into bit parts. And this latter, of course, had saved much on costumery. For the dress and costumes of these people had not much changed in five centuries. On the other hand, there had been little of the film star in them. When they were used, each fragment of each and every scene had to be directed with the most minute attention to detail, always through an interpreter and invariably with the end result being that Scatsman, before he could be satisfied, would have the set in uproar. The stars would be threatening to walk out, the local actors themselves gibbering in fear of the little man's temper, as though the directors were the great Vlad himself resurrected. Indeed, when finally those locals, all 280 of them, had walked off the set, flatly refusing to work any longer on the giant production, Scatsman had been blamed. Not to his face, of course not, but behind his back the cast and technicians had known that he was the spanner in the works. This did not explain, though, the fact that when Filar Jonst, the PR man, went after the runaways, in fact to pay them for their last wages, he discovered two empty villages. Not only had the rather primitive actors deserted the film, not that it mattered greatly for all of their important scenes were already in the can, but they had taken their families, friends, indeed the entire populations of their home villages with them. Stranger still, the quaint old town into which they had all moved en masse was only a mile or so further down the mountain road. Whatever were they running away from? Well, they had not bothered to run very far. 
Ever the PR man, Jones had followed them, only to discover that in the now badly overcrowded town, no one would have anything to do with him, neither refugees nor regular inhabitants. Mystified, he had returned to his colleagues. Within a day or so, however, rumors had found their way back to the mobile town in the mountains. The whispers were vague and inconclusive, and no one really bothered much to listen to them, but in essence they gave the lie to anyone who might try to attach the blame to Scatsman. No, the rumors said, the villagers had not been frightened off by the little boss, and no, they had not found the work distasteful. The money had been more than welcome and they were very grateful. But did the rich American bosses not know that there had been strange rumblings in the mountains? And were they not aware that in Czechoslovakia a priest had foretold queer horror in the highlands? Why, wasn't it a common knowledge that an ancient burial place in the grounds of certain crumbling and massive ruins high in the rocky passes was suddenly most… unquiet? No. Better that the Americans be given a wide berth until, one way or another, they were gone and the mountains were peaceful again. Though of course he had his ear to the ground, still it was all far beyond Filar Jones's understanding. And even had he thought or bothered himself to look at a map of the region, though there was no reason why he should, it is doubtful that he would have noticed anything at all out of the ordinary. Maps being what they are in that country, in all probability the ancient boundaries would not be marked, and so Jones would not have seen that the two deserted villages lay within the perimeter of what once had been the princedom of Vlad Sepich Dracula of Wallachia or that the now bulging town lower down the mountain slopes lay outside this century de prince's domain. Now all this had happened before the latest crisis, but even then phalanx had been overdue on location, delayed for first one reason and then another in Hollywood. And so, a number of restless, wasteless days had gone by, until finally came that great morning when the poisonous little director received the telephone message every one had been waiting and praying for. Old Grimgrin was on his way at last. He would be on the mid-afternoon flight. Could someone meet him and his retinue at the airport to escort him to location? Could someone meet them indeed? Scotsman himself would meet them, and without further ado, the delighted director had set out in his huge car with Joe, his driver, down into the steep mountain roads to the distant town. For once in his life, Scotsman had been truly happy. He had known, he told Joe, that it was all going to be okay. Nothing ever went wrong on his birthday. Nothing dared to go wrong on his birthday. And thus he had snarled cheerfully to Joe all the way to the dismal airport, where finally he had been informed of his superstar's latest and most serious delay. Having picked up a smattering of the local language, it was Joe who first received the news, and when Scatsman had recovered from his initial convulsions, it was Joe who phoned the facts through to Philar Jones in the overcrowded town where the PR man had not yet given up trying to solve the mystery of the runaway extras. Jones, in turn, 
had taken the dread message back to his film friends in the mountains. Later, it also fell to the PR man to spot the horde of extras all costumed for a battle scene, helmeted and leather-sandaled, with a variety of shields, swords, maces, and lances, as they came creeping down out of the higher passes, flanked by riders astride great warhorses. The PR man had been astounded, but only for a moment, and then he had given a whoop of understanding. Why, Scatsman, the old fraud! They might have expected something like this of him. Wasn't it his birthday? This explained everything. The runaway extras, the alleged accident of Zack Phalanx, it had all been a build-up to the big surprise. And surely that great grim-faced leading rider was Zack Phalanx. Dusk was settling over the mountains like a great gray mantle by that time, and the actors and technicians and all were already settling into their caravans and tents, preparing for the next day's work or bedding down for the night. Fielard Jones's cry went up for all of them to hear. Well, I'll be damned. Zack! Zack Phalanx! Where's that old rogue Scotsman hiding? Then they heard his quavering, querying exclamation of disbelief. And finally, his awful rising scream, cut off by a thick sound not unlike a meat cleaver sinking into a side of beef. Something less than an hour later, Harry S. Scatsman's big car came round the last bend into the winding mountain road and turned off onto the fringe of the flat cleared area that housed the sprawling units of the vast mobile film town. The headlights cut a swath of light between the shadowed ranks of shacks, trailers, trucks, caravans, and tents, illuminating a scene that caused Joe to slam on his brakes so hard that Scatsman almost shot headlong over into the front of the car. Twin rows of stakes stretched away toward a bleak background of dark and sullen mountains, and atop each stake sat the motionless form of a dressed dummy, head down and arms bound. What in hell? Scatsman snarled, leaping from the car with an agility all out of character with his shape and size. A hundred torches suddenly flared in the dark behind the shacks, trucks, and tents, and their bearers came forward out of the shadows to form a circle about Scatsman and the car. And suddenly the director knew, just as Fielar Jones had known, what it was all about. Why, this was one of Zack's scenes. The stakes, torches, the grimly helmeted warriors. Where is he? Scatsman roared, slapping his thigh and doing a little jig. Where's that bastard Zack Phalanx? I might have known he wouldn't forget my birthday. The silent torchbearers closed in, tightening the circle. Down the path of stakes, horses came clopping, the lead horse carrying a huge figure clad in the cape and apparel of a warrior prince. Zack! Zack! cried Scatsman, pushing forward, to be grabbed and held tight between two of the encircling torchbearers. And then he smelled a smell that was not grease paint, and beneath the nearest helmet he saw... Zack? he uselessly croaked once more. At the same time, Joe, too, noticed something very wrong namely the skeletal claw that held a torch close to its driver's window. He convulsively gunned the car's big motor, twisting the wheel, spitting the car on madly screaming tires. 
A hurled lance crashed through the windshield and pinned him like a fly to the upholstery of his seat. His arms flew wide in a last spasm, and the car turned on its side, splintering the nearest stake and flinging the grisly corpse that it supported into a welter of entrails at the director's feet. No dummy this, but a dumb blonde, Shani Salarno, naked but for a torn and blood-stained dressing gown, eyes glazed and bulging. Scatsman swayed and would have fallen, but he was flanked now by two great horses. Their riders reached down to lift him bodily from the ground. He kicked feebly at thin air as they cantered with him down between the ranks of stakes to where the caped Vlad now waited. Before the director's unbelieving eyes, there passed a bobbing procession of mutilated forms, some of them still writhing weakly on the cruel stakes. Jerry Solinger, Glory Graham, Sam Sugar Sweeney, they were all there. Even Fielar Jonest, though only his head decorated its stake. As the horses drew level with their bony horror in the cape, Scatsman was lifted higher still, and he saw the waiting, needle-sharp point of the last empty stake. He might perhaps have screamed, but only knew how to snarl. He did neither but threw back his head and laughed, albeit hysterically, insanely, laughed right into the fleshless, helmeted face whose black eye sockets so keenly regarded him. He was Harry S. Scatsman, wasn't he? And this was his epic, wasn't it? This was his big scene! What else could he do? Action! Camera! He snarled as they rammed him down onto the last terrible fang of Vlad the Impaler. Thank you for joining us for this episode of A Gate Beyond. Join us again in two weeks for more tales of the unusual and otherworldly, gathered from the farthest reaches of the human imagination. Until then, always go beyond. Special effects by Zapsplat.com Produced and edited by Danny Atwell Starring Dan Mac McCloskey A Gate Beyond is a presentation of Dark Charm Media Copyright 2024 All rights reserved